0: This is a Charles Russell Speechlees podcast. Hi, Charlie. It's good to see you. Um, and hi, and thanks for picking this one up um, from Jenny. Um, just by way of recap and touching on some of the issues that we discussed last time, because um, the situation has moved on a little bit. Um, we're acting, as you know, for Prime Properties in relation to the redevelopment of forty to fifty Murray's in London. Now the issue that we discussed last time was really to deal with the immediate aftermath of a flood that had occurred and that was likely to impact progress of the works. Now you'll be aware, it's the redevelopment of a hotel and the client is very keen to keep works progressing. Um, Unfortunately, some of the impact that we had feared in terms of progress is very likely to be a real possibility and we'll come on to discuss that. Um, you'll have seen that the contract that we're looking at is the JCT Design and bill 2016 um, with amendments and the insurance option was option B. Now Jenny and I discussed immediate implications and sort of getting insurers notified and immediate investigations into cause of the flood and potential notices in terms of delay claims and how to manage that. Now Prime Properties had notified insurers of a claim and when we last had the discussion, they were looking into the cause of the flood. Now I can update that it is now confirmed that the cause of the flood was defective workmanship by the main contractor, main contractors limited, and that there was a faulty connection in the pipe work. Main contractor has been made aware. Um, Positively though, insurers have confirmed cover. The remedial scope of works have been signed off And main contractors have been instructed to carry out the remedial works. So, you know, some good things there and people are being proactive, which is great. But we've also um, done a bit more investigation in terms of progress generally on the project. And the project was already in delay before the flood event and the flood event is going to cause further critical delay. In terms of culpability, though, for that prior delay, it is more and more likely that it's down to main contractor, whilst there's no formal delay analysis that's been prepared that's currently being looked into, and I I know we'll discuss that. But bearing that in mind, you've got prime properties wanting to keep everything on track, um, but it wants to levy liquidated damages against main contractor for culpability in terms of that first period of delay, if you like. Um, And it's got to try and manage that with delay caused by the flood, how we deal with that, the insurance claim, and just keeping the main contractor on track. To start off with, um, Charlie, let's just unpick how we deal with the fact that you've got the flood, which is a specified peril, but is contractor default. How, How do we deal with how the flood impacts the main contractor's culpability for delay to the project, given that actually the flood was also caused by contractor default?
1: Yes, Uh, so let's have a look at the flood and the reinstatement works that follow it um, separately. Uh, And we can also look at the question of extensions of time and loss and expense separately as well, because I think we will need to. Taking extensions of time first, um, and I think, as you discussed with Jenny in the first conference, under clause 2.26, uh, the main contractor is, in principle, entitled to an extension of time for loss and damage occasioned by a specified peril, irrespective of fault. And that's yes. clause 2.26.9. But as to the reinstatement works, it's um, it's not such a good position for the client, because under clause six. 6- these are deemed to be a change. So, in principle, uh, the main contractor is entitled to an extension of time for these works. But of course, uh, how far they're entitled to an extension of time will depend on analysing the prior delay events that you referred to as well, the prior culpable delay that the main contractor was in. Of course, when uh, we get to loss and expense, Uh, assuming, and I think, again, this was addressed by uh, Jenny with you in the first conference where you discussed uh, the relevant notices under clause 420.
0: Correct.
1: Uh, Assuming those have been served, uh, the question is whether there is an an entitlement to loss and expense in principle. And again, you've got to look at the flood and uh, I think the reinstatement works separately. And I think the answer is that the main contractor has no entitlement to loss and expense for the flood, because the cause was its own default. And uh, that we get when looking at Clause 4.21.5, Clause 4.21 setting out the regime for uh, relevant matters. Uh, And here, of course, because it was the contractor's fault, uh, no entitlement to loss and expense. However, when you look at the reinstatement works, because again, these are considered to be a change, the main contractor uh, will be entitled to loss and expense for the reinstatement works.
0: Great, thank you. Well, I, I can confirm that the main main contractors have provided the relevant notices, but we've not seen we've not seen details of um, any loss and expense and the basis of that, and so process to ascertain that has not yet been undergone. But it's helpful to understand the difference and separate out where that loss and expense can be claimed and that it doesn't cover the flood. Um, looking now, then. At the client's position in terms of LADs because um, again we've got a situation where contractor culpability means prior to the flood client could levy LADs um, but if so let's just cover the process for doing that and also for how long it can levy LADs when you've got the fact that the flood is also contractor culpability.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, let's take it in stages then. So the client will need to serve a notice under Clause 2.28, uh, a non-completion notice. And then um, the client will need to notify the main contractor in accordance with Clause 2.29.1. And again, I'll set out all of the relevant uh, requirements in my note that follows this conference, if, if it's going to help.
0: Thank you. Yes.
1: Uh, So, uh, as I say, the client will need to notify the main contractor that uh, it it may require payment of or to deduct uh, LADs. And then the client is, in theory, uh, entitled to deduct LADs in accordance with clause 2.29.2. And and that clause gives them two options, either to deduct the LADs as a debt or uh, as a deduction from sums that are are otherwise due to uh, the main contractor provided that they serve a pay less notice uh, in accordance with uh, the relevant contractual provisions. But um, as you've uh, already noted, it gets a lot more tricky when we're actually considering the extent to which they might be entitled to any extension of time, uh, and therefore on the flip side of that coin, what LADs the client can levy. Um, And that's because we get back to the knotty issue of uh, concurrent delay here. Now, sort of at a broad level I think it's right to say that the client's entitlement to levy LADs needs to be assessed in light of the fact that the main contractor was in prior culpable delay on the project already. Now I think you said that there was already some analysis and going into the various causes of the delay, but that we haven't seen that yet.
0: We haven't got a full delay analysis. Um, that's currently being worked up by an expert. Um, and as I said, it, it's fairly clear that there is contractor culpability, but what is yet to be determined is the specific periods of critical delay, and when they fall within the programme, and how then that aligns with what happened with the flood.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I I think all we can probably do at the moment is um, try and outline the the principles that will guide how we look at this. Uh, And again, I wish I Rupert that I could give an entirely straightforward answer, but um, unfortunately it's not quite as um, simple as that as as you know. Um, Now that the question of what happens under a JCT contract when there is concurrent delay is uh, pretty tricky and it's not free from doubt. There is no court of appeal authority uh, addressing the point and there are conflicting first-instance decisions, some saying that the contractor does get an extension of time and others saying that the contractor doesn't. Um, But whatever the correct position under the JCT as a matter of law, what's really critical is establishing whether there is really any concurrent delay. And uh, in order to to do that, uh, you've got to start off with uh, a definition of what concurrent delay is and I think that, that probably the best one for that is uh, the definition given by John Maring QC in his uh, celebrated article that was endorsed in the Adyard and Abu Dhabi case and again I'll give full citations to these authorities and uh, relevant paragraphs in, in the note that follows up the conference but it's probably worth me just saying what uh, the definition of concurrent delay that was endorsed by Justice Hamblin in that case was Yes. and he says uh, it's a useful working definition of concurrent delay in this context is a period of project overrun which is caused by two or more effective causes of delay which are of approximately equal causative potency. Now um, that that definition was endorsed by the Court of Appeal in uh, North Midland and Sidon Homes and again citations and paragraph uh, numbers will be provided in my note but the long and the short of it is that in order to establish concurrency or proper concurrency on with two different causes one needs to establish that both the causes in question actually caused as a matter of fact delay to the works and that's actually quite a rare finding and again just uh, for reference I'll give uh, citations to uh, the relevant paragraphs, but a really good case to look at on that front is the Saga Cruises and Fincantieri case, uh, the judgment of uh, Sarah Cocker QC, who was sitting as a, a deputy high court judge. But the, the, the real message in all this is you've got to work out whether there was causation, in fact, from both of the causes relied on as concurrent delay. Uh, and so really, a way, giving a final answer on this, we'll have to wait for the uh, the analysis that um, you spoke about uh, to, to be finalized we can say at the moment is that you know assuming that the contractor is entitled to an extension of time here uh, where there's concurrent delay but only on that assumption which i, I don't say anything about at this point if the flood and reinstatement works actually delay completion concurrently with the main contractor's prior delay the client won't be able to levy LADs for that concurrent period, and the main contractor will be entitled to an extension of time. But even if there is true concurrency, I think I'm right in saying that there's a specific amendment to the party's contract here. And that specific amendment, the, the effect of it, uh, was discussed last um, in the last conference with Jenny. That's uh, right. And the long and short of it there is that for the four-week period, at least at the start, there will be no entitlement to an extension of time and the client can levy LADs for that period. How far after that period there's any concurrent delay uh, will be a matter of investigation on the facts by uh, a delay expert um, as and when the time comes. Um, And and just to sort of round that all off, um, if there's no actual delay to the completion date by the uh, reinstatement works or indeed the flood, then, There will be no entitlement to an extension of time and the client can of course levy LADs Uh, but it doesn't sound like we're in that simple uh, a type of situation no Um, no, unfortunately not and however long the duration uh, of the main contractor's prior culpable delay to the completion date for that period the main contractor has no entitlement to levy loss and expense
0: that's really helpful just to recap there because we started off talking about levying leds in the process i think it's important to stress because um where we see common slip-ups is the fact that you've got to serve the two notices before you can levy the ld so it's making sure that clients are aware that there are two separate notices, and that is part of the contractual process. But also, then the fact that if seeking to actually le- levy LADs in a payless notice, you've got to also make sure that you comply with the contractual regime for payless notices and making sure that it is a valid payless notice. And that's obviously subject of um, another con, potentially, where we've seen numerous mishaps but it's making sure from the client perspective that that process is rigidly followed and that all the various hallmarks of the various notices for LDs are followed to a T as well as ensuring that you've got the correct and valid payless notice as well so Absolutely. we need to look yeah we need to look at all of that because I'm sure you've seen numerous instances where the contractual process is not followed either there's one notice missing or it's not a valid payless notice and then the, the client is in difficulty so um, make sure that is closely looked at. Um, I also mentioned that Um, we have got sign-off from insurers in relation to cover which is great and that actually a scope of works has already has also been signed off and the contractor's been instructed so all of that is great the difficulty is from the client's perspective is managing cash flow which you know is a grave concern especially in the current environment and especially Mm. in the construction industry um, which is driving some of the pressure to levy LADs. And in this particular instance, there's a difficulty with commencing the reinstatement works because there is a delay in receiving funds from insurers in respect of the reinstatement works and the client's in a tricky position because it doesn't want to hold up the works. um, And yet, you know, it's got a cash flow issue. And in terms of advising on strategy, Who would bear the risk for this delay? Because, you know, again, it's driven by the contractor default in the first place. It's not the client's fault. It's covered by insurance and yet the insurer is not paid out yet. So um, how do we deal with delay which arises from this?
1: Yeah, it's I think this is a a, a pretty difficult question, actually. And I think the headline is ultimately it'll be the contractor that is bearing the risk under the contract for this. You know, the the starting position I think really is, it's contractor's risk unless there is an identifiable act of prevention. And here I can't really see that there is an act of prevention, even if the insurers are delaying in their payment in order to fund those reinstatement works. I I can't see that it's gonna be um, the employer's risk again though sort of getting down to the detail we need to analyze it in two parts yeah now the first is is there an entitlement to an extension of time for the delay and receipt of funds from insurers or is there an entitlement to loss and expense as well and addressing the extension of time um the delayed receipt of funds doesn't really fall within any category within clause 2.26 it it's not caused uh, by any specified peril as such, uh, because it, it's not loss or damage occasioned by any specified peril, even if, you know, sort of on a natural understanding of how things progressed, you might think that without the specified peril, there would never have been this issue. But I, I don't think we could readily say it's caused by the the specified peril in this case.
0: So it is, so there is a, there is a break in causation, as it were, which we could justify.
1: That's right. Yes, I think that's correct. Okay. And uh, it, it's certainly not part of the change. You know, it's not, it's not part of the reinstatement works. Although, of course, the counter to that is, well, the reinstatement works are a change and the contractor under the contract is entitled to be paid in order to carry out those reinstatement works by insurers. Exactly. Yeah. But, but again, I just don't see that it could really be viewed as the change. And e- equally, I, I can't see that. Uh, delayed receipt of insurance funds could be analysed as part of the change for the reinstatement works under clause 613.6 and therefore I can't see that it would fall under clause 2.26.1 either.
0: Great I think I probably agree with that.
1: There is one potential argument that I just thought I'd I'd mention because I think it it is an arguable position Um, and that's that the delayed receipt of insurance funds qualifies as a relevant event uh, under 2.26.6 for any impediment prevention or default whether by act or omission by the employer or any employer's person now <clears throat> employers persons under the jct is as you know is defined as all persons employed engaged or authorized by the employer yeah but there's no specific requirement within that definition for any uh, for all of the employer's persons to actually be present on site. It's just persons authorised by the employer, engaged or, or employed by them. Yes. And I think you said at the start that this is uh, insurance under option B.
0: That's correct, yes.
1: And so under Schedule 3 of the JCT, what you have is uh, the employer, it being on the employer to arrange and take out the insurance. So, uh, on, on that analysis, that, that there may be an argument that the delay in receipt of in, uh, insurance funds was an act of prevention because insurers were authorised by the employer. And it is their failure to pay on one view that has led to this period of delay. But I, I think probably that that argument, though, um, you know, arguable, is not, is not right. And stretches the definition of what an an employer's authorized person really is or a person authorized by the employer would be. Um, so I, I just mention it here because I think it's an argument we might expect to to see in any correspondence but i don't I, I don't think it's correct as a matter of analysis.
0: I think I'd agree with you because when you think about what that clause is um, intended to cover being authorized by somebody would suggest that there's some sort of element of control from the employer whereas clearly the difficulty here is that the employer is not able to exert that control or you know it is out of the employer's hands. so it would seem to be a bit harsh if the employer then had to had to deal with that but equally from the contractor's point of view it's even less in control so it seems a bit harsh that the contractor has to bear the risk but unfortunately maybe that's just the way that the contract falls.
1: So that's extensions of time and then turning to loss and expense on this question. If, of course, uh, there is no uh, relevant event, um, then there will be no relevant matter under which the contractor, at least on these facts, uh, would be able to claim um, loss and expense. But if, uh, as I'd suggested, this potential argument that the delayed receipt of funds counts as an act of prevention by an employer's person again there would be an entitlement to loss and expense for that period Mm. and this is all of course subject to the caveat that we would need to see the analysis underlying all of this from our delay expert anyway to see to what extent there was concurrency with the main contractors. Sure. Um, But but, but just sort of a further point on this is if we are in the world where the contractor manages uh, to, to successfully run the argument that the delayed receipt of funds counts as an act of prevention by an employer's person. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's an end of matters as far as a claim for loss and expense is concerned. They might, uh, as a result, come within one of the uh, relevant matters because it would be an act of prevention, but there might be a defense to that claim for money that the client could run um, in opposition now, under clause 613.4, the main contractor um, is obliged uh, after any inspection, and I'm reading from the clause here because I think, I think it helps, but again, I will set it out in a note. Uh, so the main contractor shall, after any inspection required by the insurers under the works insurance policy, and with due diligence, restore the damaged work, replace or repair any lost or damaged site materials, remove and dispose of any debris, collectively defined as the reinstatement works, and proceed with the carrying out and completion of the works. And that means that the client might well be able to say that if the main contractor is asking for loss and expense through this period of delayed receipt of insurance funds, that we could say, well, by the act of you claiming that loss and expense because you can't proceed with the works you're in breach of clause 613.4 for failing to proceed with due diligence that gives us a claim against you and therefore this whole thing is circuitous uh, and our claims would cancel one another out so just really in summary there if we are in that you know bad position whereby the contractor is able to say that there was an active prevention and therefore they get an eot and potentially loss and expense, we could defend that claim for loss and expense by reference to clause 613.4.
0: Yeah. I mean it, it is a it's a difficult situation and in the current environment where cash flow is even more important than it was in previous days um, it, it seems difficult arguments to run both ways to be honest. It comes back to prime properties paramount priority, which is to keep the project on track and to really incentivize the contractor to keep going with the works where effectively it's in both parties' interest to simply get on with things um, without running these type of arguments that keep you and I busy. Um, so the message would clearly be for parties to look for what works best for the project to follow the guide of the Construction Leadership Council to work collaboratively rather than looking at um, the contract and to work towards sort of the spirit of the project. Um, And and that way limiting financial exposure for both parties involved and really trying to get things moving. Um, Thank you. And I think that will be very useful to set out in your notes so that when going back to the client, we can really strip out the different strands of arguments Um, and the strategy and justification for really working with the contractor to keep things moving Um, we've covered quite a lot um, certainly in terms of complexity but is there anything else the client should think about doing or not doing at this stage bearing in mind the current delay analysis that I know is of utmost importance at the present time
1: yeah and and I, I think that's the main thing as far as I'm concerned that get that delay analysis on foot. And remember that um, under the JCT, it's a prospective analysis prior to the completion date at the very least. And So that's an important point to bear in mind. And um, I know Jenny and you discussed gathering relevant evidence to support that analysis as well, Um, assuming the effects of these events are still ongoing, that that's a continuing process that needs to uh, be maintained. Yeah. Uh, And beyond that, it's serving the relevant contractual notices. And like, like you said, it's, it really it's a, a commercial matter for the client, the extent to which they want to be uh, um, uh, what might be thought more aggressive or um, more collaborative in, in their approach. And I think, you know, on one view, they could serve non-completion notices and indicate their intention to levy LADs for the entire period of delay, including this delayed receipt of insurance funds. Or they could try and be more collaborative and look, at least in respect of the delayed receipt of insurance funds, to broker a deal. Because like you have suggested, um, collaborative working is so often much better. And if a deal can be reached, for example, uh, whereby the parties agree to treat that delay um, as caused by the flood um, and therefore subject to an EOT, but not LADs, then that might be quite a good way of, of moving things forward.
0: Yeah, yeah well, I think um, we will be going back to the client to set out various options, but um, a collaborative approach is the one that's generally favored. So maybe we'll be able to um, assist in those discussions with the contractor so we can come up with a commercial settlement, um, especially in view of the ongoing disruption from the pandemic. Um, thank you, Charlie, that's been really helpful. And I've really enjoyed discussing that with you today. And I look forward to receiving your note.
1: Thanks very much, Rupert. That's been, that's been great.
0: And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed the second instalment of our podcast. Um, please feel free to drop us a line with any feedback. And if you have any other follow-up questions, please feel free to contact either Charlie Thompson at Keating Chambers or myself, Rupert Larker at Charles Russell Speechlees. Thank you very much.
1: This is a Charles Russell Speechlees podcast.